read it this morning. We're going to continue in our study in Mark's gospel. We're getting close to finishing. This morning we'll be in chapter 15. We're going to start reading at verse 33. So Mark's gospel, chapter 15, we'll start reading at verse 33. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of the guys will slip you a Bible as uh, you raise your hand, and we want you to follow along. We're going to go through verses 33 through 47, the end of the chapter here this morning. So Mark chapter 15, Mark in the New Testament, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chapter 15, we'll start reading at verse 33. We've been looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, while you're turning there, you might recall if you've done a study or been with us in our study of the book of Leviticus, that in chapter 17, verse 11 of the book of Leviticus, it tells us that it's in the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament would pick up that truth and he would remind us there in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. You see, in the Old Testament, sacrifices and offerings that were given, when you sin, you would have to bring a sin sacrifice to the priest there at the tabernacle later on when they built the temple. And what would take place is a couple concepts. That is transference and substitution. And what I mean by that is you would pick out the best of your animal, the one without spot or blemish. You would bring it to the priest there at the tabernacle or at the temple. And there, as you would lay your hands on that animal, transference took place. In other words, as you confessed your sin, then your sin was transferred onto that animal, and then that animal would become a substitute for you. And in the Old Testament, as the priest would kill that animal and the blood was shed, it was a real powerful illustration of the seriousness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so that innocent animal, because of your sin, ended up dying. And so that was the Old Testament covenant. And we know that it made atonement for sin. And then in Hebrews, as you travel through the book of Hebrews, there's the author of Hebrews trying to really make this important point that the weakness of the Old Testament covenant was this, that all of the shedding of and, and the sacrifices of the bulls and goats were not enough for the taking away of the sins. It made atonement, that is kofar in the Hebrew, and it was a covering of sin until the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, came and died for our sins once and for all. And so that's the point that is made and brought out uh, to the reader there in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10 declares, but Jesus Christ has appeared to put away sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. And that's what we've been seeing Jesus do now as he's hanging on the cross. We've seen the, that Jesus is on that hill, Golgotha. He's dying for the sins of the world. He's shedding his blood, the perfect Lamb of God, as our sins are placed upon him. We have seen as we travel through chapters 14 and the chapter 15 of Mark's narrative, narrative here that he is telling us about how Jesus took on the cup of suffering and death. He would be arrested there in the garden after sweating great drops of blood. He would be taken there before the council where he was beaten. Then he was handed over to Pilate. Pilate would have him stand before the crowds where the crowds would yell out, crucify Jesus, we will not have this man rule over us. They would take Jesus and they would scourge him with that cat of nine tails. They would also pound on his head a crown of thorns and then they would give him the cross on which he was to hang upon 
to bear, to walk down the streets of Jerusalem to that place of execution, again, called the place of the skull, or that is Golgotha. And so there Jesus, we have seen, dying for the sins of the world. We have also, as we saw last week, seen the Roman soldiers casting lots to see who would get his outer garment. The chief priests and elders are mocking him, saying he saved others, himself he cannot save. And I hope that we realize that as we go through this, that Jesus could have saved himself. And of course, the saying goes as this, that it wasn't those nails that kept Jesus on that cross. It was his love for you. And may we never forget that. And so let's pick up our text as we see Jesus hanging on Calvary's cross for our sins. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, as verse 33 of Mark chapter 15 declares to us. And Father, we once again, as we go through this text, I pray that it would pierce our hearts. And Lord, that it would uh, be something, Lord, that once again, that, that we are moved very deeply by the sacrifice of your son, that we see how serious sin was, that we acquire such a sacrifice that is the perfect Lamb of God, God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, who came and died for us specifically. And so, Lord, may we be stirred this morning as we go over this text, as we finish this chapter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the sixth hour would be at high noon. Remember, it was at the third hour when they would pin Jesus to that cross. And he would be on the cross until the ninth hour. So six hours, Jesus is on the cross, dying for our sins. And it would be at the ninth hour, or that is at 12 noon, until three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness. And Mark tells us it was over the whole land. And it's interesting that the Roman historian, Phlegon, he writes, this that quote in the fourth year of the 202nd olympiad and that would put it at the time of jesus crucifixion there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun at the sixth hour the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake unquote and what makes this especially remarkable is is that jesus is dying on passover and passover was always held at the full moon so with it being the full moon, it would be impossible that there would be a natural eclipse of the sun. It, it was as though heaven was declaring in some way this horrible crime that man was committing. And the people desired to live in darkness. They said to the light of the world, we will not have you rule over us. Take him away and crucify him. And consequently, now there is darkness literally. And, and what an eerie darkness it must have been. It, it was a supernatural darkness. It, it must have been really kind of terrifying and haunting. And those who understood what was going on, it must have really pierced their souls. Hey, we've rejected the light of the world, and now we are in darkness. And to the extent that anyone rejects the light of the world, their lives will be filled with darkness. It will be an eerie and haunting darkness that they will have in their lives. And so we as Christians rejoice because the light of the world has died for us. We come to the light, and as we come to the light, we are to walk in the light, as John tells us in his epistle. But they didn't. So verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Mark here gives the words of Jesus in the language that Jesus spoke them. And very rarely do we have the actual words of Jesus. We have the translation of Jesus' words, of course, translated 
to Greek and then from Greek to English so you and I can read those words in our Bibles. But here we see that, that we're given the actual words in order that we might understand why some of those who were standing by there at the cross thought that he's crying out for Elijah. Here is Jesus saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And they thought, hey, he's, he's crying out for Elijah. But in reality, he was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, this was a fulfillment of Psalm 22. When you read Psalm 22, as, as most of you have, and you're familiar with that psalm, David writing that psalm a thousand years before the crucifixion. David is prophesying about the crucifixion of Jesus, the things that he would be saying, the, the things that would be happening to him, what he would be feeling, the events that would be taking uh, place around the cross of Calvary. And Psalm 22 starts out, with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I, I cry in the daytime, but you did not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy. And you see, that's the key. It was because of the righteousness and the perfection and the holiness of God that Jesus was forsaken of God at this moment. You see, sin always separates a man from God. And when the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus, that fellowship that he had experienced, that coexistence, that oneness with the Father was broken. And Jesus had existed with God from the beginning. He who shared the glory of God before the world ever existed was at this point forsaken of God when God laid upon him the iniquities of us all. Jesus tasted death for every man, every woman. He tasted death for you. He experienced the consequences of sin, of spiritual death, separation from God. And thus he cried out, my God, my God. Every other time before it was my father. Now it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? May God help us never to echo that prayer of Jesus. You see, he went through this moment so that you and I would never be forsaken of God as we come to him and surrender our lives to him as we come in faith and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You died for me, and I just received that. I believe in that. I surrender my heart to you. But you see, those who do live in sin, those who refuse Jesus as their Savior, they experience separation from God. The Bible is very clear on that. And Jesus, I believe, as he cried out this in the Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, it was a cry of intensity. It was a cry of agony. It's kept in the original language that you and I might understand that it wasn't just a, a small whimper or a simple statement, but it was an intense cry of agony. And as I look at the life of Jesus, there wasn't too many things that Jesus was afraid of. There wasn't too many things that concerned him or, or he was anxious over too many things. But here we know that as we look at this, this is a time of agony this is a time where he cries this out you know eli eli my god my god as the sins were placed upon him when he was in the galilee region as the people came to him that had sickness and disease he wasn't afraid to reach out and touch the one who had leprosy as we saw and the man would come to jesus and said if you're willing cleanse me and jesus reached out with his hand even though leprosy was very contagious and it was deadly jesus reached out and touched him and brought healing to him 
When Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee, the storms didn't frighten him. He went walking on the water. He was in the boat with those disciples, and he would speak, and the storms would calm. The religious leaders, the the civil leaders, Pontius Pilate and Herod, they didn't intimidate him. But there was one thing that brought agony to our Lord, and that was at this moment. When he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And at this time, when all of my sins and your sins were put on him, and God, being a holy God, couldn't look upon him, and Jesus not only only experiencing that broken fellowship with the Father at this time, but he was experiencing the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. So Jesus Christ is out in great agony. As I think about this, what brings fear to us in our lives? What brings concern? What brings agony? There's a number of things that we can be afraid of, that we can concern about, that we can be anxious about. It can be about relationships. Maybe you can be afraid of the boss, or maybe there's a relationship of some sort that you're concerned about. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's, it's somebody else, another family member, a good friend. And it's not a good situation. Maybe you're afraid as, as you look at your finances or what's going to happen to the economy. We've heard a lot about being afraid in this last week, haven't we, with the stock market tanking and with it plummeting and, and people are wondering what's going to happen tomorrow when the stock market opens up because our credit rating has been declined and, and has been downgraded. And so you hear that word, Fear. There's a couple things that moves the stock markets. One is greed, the other is fear. And we've seen a lot of fear, haven't we? So people are wondering, what's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen with jobs? They're, they're talking about, is it going to be another recession? I don't know if we even got out of the last recession. So people are afraid and they're concerned. We see the perplexity of nations, as Jesus said, that in the last days that would take place. There's going to be problems that nations are going to be facing, that they don't know how to solve those problems. I think that we are seeing today the shaking of the nations, not just here in this nation, but across Europe and across the Middle East. We see starvation that has taken place at the Horn of Africa. There's a lot of things that can bring concern, that can bring fear into our lives, that can cause us to be anxious. But I learned something here. And what I hope and pray that as I look at our Lord, the one thing that concerned him, the one thing that brought fear in his life was at this moment when that closeness with the Father was broken because he took the sins of the world upon himself. And I know that we can face different things that that cause us to fear, but I pray that the one thing that truly that we would be concerned about every single day and every moment of our lives is that we don't have that closeness with the Father. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you do have something to be fearful about, and that is separation from God. Because you see, it's only through Jesus Christ that there's any hope of forgiveness of sin and any hope of salvation. It is found in nothing else, no other religious system. It is found in no one else. Only through Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven in which a man must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ, recognizing your need for savior of the world no one comes to the father except through me is what jesus said in that upper room to his disciples and anyone who rejects that has reason to truly be fearful but i want to really bring it home closer to us as believers this morning that i pray that the one thing 
that would concern us in life more than anything else is that we're out of touch with the Lord, out of that closeness and intimacy with the Lord. And you see, we can live life so easily in that way. And as we do live in that way, we begin to experience an emptiness and unfulfillment, and we start to walk around thinking life kind of stinks. It's a bummer. And we're missing out. And whenever we have that kind of attitude, it means that we're out of touch with the Father who desires to bless you and me, to fill us with his peace and joy, and to bring true satisfaction and fulfillment in our lives. Listen, life was meant to be lived in intimacy with God. And anything else is going to bring emptiness and sorrow and sadness in your life. And that's what should, more than anything, cause concern to fill our hearts just as it did with Jesus at this moment. But so oftentimes it doesn't, and it ought not to be. And this morning I just want to encourage you that that there is a great way of living, and that is that you make sure that you are staying in close intimacy with the Lord, and that the one thing that concerns you, the one thing that will bring agony to you, one thing that will bring fear to you is, Lord, if I do anything in my life that is going to break that, getting involved in sin, walking after the ways of the world, just becoming apathetic. I don't have time for you, Lord. Sure, we get afraid sometimes of our jobs and relationships and finances. But the priority is this. Lord, the one thing that really is going to bring concern to me is being out of touch and closeness with you. So, Lord, I want to live close to you. I want to to have intimacy and closeness with you, not just today, but every day. And you see, that's where you're going to experience that abundant life that Jesus promised to give to you and to me. And you see, life won't be so scary when you live in that way as well. Because you see, there's no hope in this world. And the world's only going to get worse, especially as we get closer to the return of the Lord. It's going to get more scary out there. And life is a bummer. If you are one that... You are one that is involved in the things of the world and enamored with the things of the world. It's going to leave you empty. The opportunity is here for us. If anyone here, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, surrender your life to him this morning. Don't let another day go by without doing that. He is your salvation. He is your satisfaction. He will bless you, forgive you, bring you into relationship with the Father, understanding as you do that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And he's made it possible for you. But we as Christians as well, that we have opportunity every single day to draw close to the Lord. And if on this day you're feeling discouraged and you're worried and you're afraid, I would encourage you, you touch the Lord and draw close to him. Don't move into another day without doing that and coming into deep fellowship with him, into prayer and to worship with him. And so verse 35, some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. At first glance, it looks like whoever's doing this and those who are involved in this, that they have concern for Jesus. Hey, let's get some sour wine. Again, we talked about how there was this sour wine, this this, this wine and, and myrrh mixed together, kind of anesthetic that would ease the pain of suffering. So he fills the sponge with it and puts it on the lips of Jesus. He offers it to him. Before we saw that Jesus wouldn't take it. It looks like he is maybe trying to help 
Jesus suffering here and trying to offer some relief. But if you look at Mark's account here very carefully, that is not the motive at all. This one who's offering this, this sponge to put on the lips of Jesus, this, this drink, his motive is to see if something exciting will happen. He's not moved with concern. He's moved with curiosity. And how sad is this attitude that has been displayed here at the cross towards Jesus? Hey, let's try to delay his death a little bit. Leave him alone. He gave Jesus the sponge so that he would not die too quickly. Wait, let's see if Elijah will come and deliver him. We want to see some kind of a miracle taking place. So they had more concern for that than for Jesus. They didn't have real concern for him. In verse 37, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and then breathed his last. At this point, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. We know from the other gospel accounts that he said, It is finished. Te telesta is what he would say. It's the last words of our Lord. The work is done. The work is done. Do we understand that? Do we embrace it? Do we rejoice in it? The work is done. He paid the price for our sins. That's what's being a Christian is so wonderful because you see all other religions and every other cult base their thing on what you have to do in order to, to have the approval of God, to earn the love of God, to earn salvation. This is what you have to do, and it's up to you. It's only true New Testament biblical Christianity that has a belief system on not what you've got to do, but on what he did on Calvary's cross. And Jesus said, it is finished. And that's why we're here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for what you did for us. We're a forgiven people. We're saved. And now we come boldly into your presence knowing that we can talk with you freely and worship out of a heart of great appreciation. We don't have to, to prove, you know, our goodness because we can't do that anyway. We don't have to try to come just based on our own spirituality, our own, you know, intensity, or our own knowledge of theology, whatever it might be. It is done. The work is done. The price has been paid. And now we can enter into relationship with the Father, be forgiven of sin, have the hope of heaven, and we enjoy God. Because Jesus Christ paid the price by becoming a man and dying on the cross in your place. And now it's finished. And now you walk with the Lord. And you stay close to the Lord. And you have intimacy with the Lord every single day, just as we talked about. I'm coming to you, Father, because I have reconciliation with you because of what Jesus did, your son, for me on the cross. And I know that I can fellowship with you and talk with you and expect your blessings, have confidence in your grace, and I know that you're going to help me in my time of need because of who you are and what you did. Because you're a loving Father that has purchased me. I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, your son, coming and dying for me freely. And as we realize that Jesus, because of his love for us, he loved us that much. If he loved us then, know that he loves you now. And he's going to do what's best in your life. And he's a loving father desiring to do what is good and, and to guide you and direct you and to strengthen you. And we can trust in him and we can stand on his promises. And, and Lord, I know that you're going to do the best for me in my life. And you're going to give me that life abundantly, that life of peace and that life of real purpose and that life of strength and that life of walking in godly wisdom. And I'm going to experience your love in a great way because it is finished. 
the three greatest words ever spoken, along with our Lord saying, I love you. And then he said, into your hands I commit my spirits, what the other gospels would say, quoting from Psalm 31.5, and then having said that, he breathed his last. Now Mark, we will see as he finishes the chapter here, Mark still has some more accounts of those who are at the cross there, but those who have reviled Jesus have been mocking him. They have now left that Jesus has breathed his own. And now those who remain are those who are devoted to Jesus. But first, verse 38, then the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So Jesus' body being torn, now the veil in the temple was torn in two. Now, why would Mark, as well as Matthew, mention that the veil was ripped in the temple? What does it mean for us? This is very important. The veil was that that cloth it was that that separation between the most holy place or the inner sanctuary and the holy place the temple at this time had two rooms as the priests would come in and they were the only ones allowed into the temple there was a holy place with the menorah there with the shoe bread table and the altar of incense behind the altar of incense was this veil and ancient rabbinical writings tell us that at this time in the second temple that that veil was very thin. Don't just think of a bed sheet that's separating the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. This was a thick veil. Some estimate between 12 to 18 inches thick as pieces of material are sewn together. It would take several priests to hang up this veil. It was thick, it was heavy, it was massive. And it separated, of course, the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies. In the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, that golden box, and on top was a lid called the mercy seat. And there the Lord said, as that mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, it had two cherubims made of pure gold. And the Lord said to Moses, that's where I'm going to meet with my people, between the cherubim. It was symbolic of, of the, the throne of God, that as we see visions of heaven, by Ezekiel, by Isaiah, even see it with John in the book of Revelation. There's the cherubim around the throne room of God. That's what it represented. And, and it represented the Shekinah glory of God. That's where the tangible presence of God was. And again, one of the weaknesses of the old covenant was this that the writer of Hebrew brings out, is that the old covenant never brought the people into the presence of God. Even the priests couldn't come into the presence of God. Only the high priests once a year on the Day of Atonement that would go in with the blood on his hands to sprinkle on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And so he was only allowed to go in. So that was the weakness of the old covenant. It didn't bring the people into the presence of the Lord. So no one could go into that area called the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest. And one of the things that's, um, that is believed that's traditionally believed is as you read the book of exodus you read about the high priest his garments and on his outer garments in those beautiful priestly robes were pomegranate and bells that were beyond the hem of that blue garment that he would wear but on the day of atonement he would strip himself of those holy garments and it is believed that they would put the bells as he would just go in behind the veil in the holy of holies with bells around that simple white linen robe that he would wear and the reason that they did that was because so they can hear the high priest in there that he was working. And also, it is traditionally believed that the other priests would tie a rope around his ankle. So if the high priest was in there and he wasn't worthy enough, he wasn't 
properly cleansed in the way he was supposed to, as described in the book of Leviticus, if all of a sudden the bell stopped ringing and they heard a thud, then they knew he was in big trouble. So what they did is they would pull him out by that rope by the ankle because nobody dared go behind that veil into the Holy of Holies because Moses was told if anybody besides the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, they will be struck dead. So it was a very sobering thing. It was a very serious thing for the high priest to go behind that veil on the Day of Atonement. And all of a sudden, Jesus dies on the cross. He cries out, it is finished. And suddenly, this huge, massive veil that was put up so nobody could enter and see into the Holy of Holies, all of a sudden, that veil is ripped in two from top to bottom as if it were a piece of paper. And suddenly, the priest who ministered there in the holy place, who had never been allowed into the Holy of Holies, could look right in now. The way was open. The Holy of Holies was now exposed for the first time in centuries, and in that, God was declaring to us the fact that we can now come boldly into the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace because Jesus had made the way to God for every man and every woman who embraces him. God is no longer unapproachable, but you and I can come to God today through Jesus Christ. The veil has been rent. The way has been made. The approach God, it is now possible for anyone who humbles themselves and comes in faith. And how glorious that we can come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And we don't have to go through a lot of washings and sacrifices and everything else. We simply come based on the blood of Jesus Christ by faith and by the sacrifice of praise. This is a sacrifice for us all that he made. It is so complete, it satisfies for all of us. And God is now approachable. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's a glorious fact that we come to the Father through Jesus Christ. He says, come into my presence. The Father says, come into my presence, as Hebrews chapter 10 declares, with confidence, not our own confidence, but by the confidence that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what, what is so glorious? Is we don't just do it once a year, not just for a certain amount of time, not just at a certain time, but we have the glorious opportunity and privilege to come into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus Christ, into the presence of the Father at any time. Any time that you want, you stay as long as you want, and you can do it as many times as you want. Understand that the veil has been ripped from top to bottom because Jesus paid the price for your sins and my sins. And one more thing, don't try to put the veil back up. Okay? Sometimes we can put pressure on ourselves. Well, I can only come into the presence of God if I read my Bible for an hour and we, I pray for another hour. That's great if you do that. That's wonderful. But sometimes we put such pressure on ourselves. Sometimes we think, I've got to do this religious thing. I've got to do this ceremonial thing. I've got to do you know, something to earn my way into the presence of the Lord. Now, if you're here this morning and there's been sin and carnality in your life, you need to repent and turn to the Lord. But he receives you. And sometimes other people might put pressure on you, saying you can't come into you know, the presence of God. You're not good enough, and you need to do this, and you need to follow this principle and this formula, and bit by bit that veil starts to go back up. You've got to do this. You've got to wear that. You've got to have short hair. You can't make, you know, wear makeup. And pretty soon the veil's going back up. 
where we feel like that we're not worthy enough to enter into the presence of God. And may we understand very clearly this morning that Jesus has made way for us to come into his presence by the blood of Jesus into the presence of the Father, into the Holy of Holies, where we can sit at his feet and have closeness and fellowship with him. I hope that that touches our hearts in a very deep way. And so verse 39, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This centurion, he's overseeing, he's seen the actual crucifixion. And when he saw what was being done, he said, truly this was the Son of God. The other gospel writers tell us that he said concerning Jesus that truly he was a righteous man. So this centurion had seen many people, I think, crucified before, yet there was something very remarkable about Jesus. And he said something about Jesus that he could say about no one else. This centurion begins to glorify God. And he saw Jesus for who he really was. Certainly, he was a righteous man. He was the Son of God. And you see, it's really a picture of all of us who come to Jesus through the cross, fulfilling what Jesus said in John's gospel. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And what impacted this Roman centurion was the way that Jesus handled suffering and death and pain and rejection. The rugged centurions, they were strong. They were no nonsense. They were ones that were known for their toughness. They were brave. They were the backbone of the Roman army. And this centurion, no doubt, he wasn't impressed with those who are around the cross that are mocking Jesus and wanting to see a miracle, but he was impressed with this one Jesus who hung on that cross, how he faced suffering and pain and death. That's when he was impacted. You see, when you go through difficulties yourself, you go through any kind of suffering or difficulties, do you realize that it can be a method, a way the Lord uses to bring conversion to touch the hearts of the centurions that are in your life in exodus chapter 14 you know the chapter god had the children of israel backed up against the red sea with one mountain range Pi-hiroth, the other mountain range migdal on the other side they were boxed in and there was no escape and all of a sudden the egyptian chariots came barreling down on top of them it was a tough spot, a very difficult place for what purpose? Well, you read the chapter, it tells you, God said that I might be glorified amongst the Egyptians, that they will see my people boxed in, and when they see how I delivered them, that they're clearly going to see that I am truly the Lord. Now, we know that Egypt is a type of the world. Sometimes in our lives, we say, I don't ever want to be boxed in. I know that, that I don't particularly always embrace difficulties in pain and hard times, certainly. But I'm coming to understand something. That it is in those times, in the way that I trust in the Lord and look to Him and draw from His strength and wisdom and stand on His promises that it can convince the centurion and the Egyptian. I was talking with somebody yesterday at the men's breakfast. He was telling me how he lost his son high school son, and his son to cancer and, and how his son during that time just trusted in the Lord and their family did. It was very difficult. It was very painful for them. But how many young people came to know the Lord out of that difficulty and that suffering. 
And here was this centurion who was impacted because of those dark hours that our Lord was going through. And may we understand that when we go through the difficult times and the hard times, you will have tribulation, Jesus said, that we can pick, impact others for the Lord as they see you trusting in Him, being strengthened by Him. It was Paul that said that blessed be the God of comfort that comforts us in our troubles that we may be able to comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received. Truly, he was the Son of God, is what this centurion said. And as you trust in the Lord and rest in his love, you can impact others as well. Well, there are also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome, and also followed him or ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So at this time around the cross is this group of women that have been devoted to him, who served them in very practical ways, the disciples and Jesus up in the Galilee region. They were ones that have this beautiful, beautiful devotion and love and for the Lord. And here they are at the cross. And Jesus here dying for the sins of the world, dying for their sins as well. These are very special women. And these women here, as they show their faithfulness and godly character here, they're going to be the last ones at the cross. They're going to be the first ones at the tomb, as we will see next week. One of those ladies that are listed here, I'd like to point out very quickly, is Salome. Now, she was the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. It is believed that she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's why they think that perhaps James and John was the cousin to Jesus. But here's Salome. She is there at the cross. And you recall that it wasn't just actually a little week before this, right before they got to Jerusalem for the Passover. She was the one that came to Jesus and she requested, can my sons be at your right and at your left when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, you don't know what you ask. Can they drink of the cup that I'm about ready to drink from? Can they be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? She said, sure they can. Now, James and John would be martyred for Jesus Christ. They, they would face difficulties and trials. They would go through the cup of suffering, certainly. But you see, she didn't understand, and James and John didn't understand at that time. They were thinking of kingdom and glory and all of this. And here's Salome. She's watching this. And who's on the left and who's on the right? Two thieves. And I just wonder if it struck her. <laughs> wow. Just a few days before I asked if my sons would be on the left and on the right. And there are two thieves that are suffering along with Jesus, one on the left and on the right. She was probably thinking, I'm glad that the Lord at this time didn't answer my request. And I just want to remind you that sometimes the Lord says no to us. We'll come to him and we have this request, we have this desire, we have this that we want in our lives. And one of the things as I've traveled down the road in my life that I found that no from the Lord can be a very wonderful answer, or at least wait. And I've looked back at my life at times when, you know, I thought, oh Lord, why didn't you answer this prayer? Why didn't you meet, you know, you know, do this work that I desire? Why didn't you work in this way? And I look back and I see that he had something better or he had a different plan for me or he said, wait. And I'm very thankful for that. So trust in the Lord and continue to just wait on him. Sometimes people say, God didn't answer my prayer. And 
he answers, and sometimes the answer is no. And that's a good answer, just as good as yes, because he's going to do what's only best for you. So here, as we continue, as we move on, now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So here's Joseph of Arimathea. It is in John's gospel that we're told that he was a secret disciple. He was waiting for the kingdom of God, as we see Mark tells us, Matthew tells us that he was wealthy. He was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin council. He's attracted toward Jesus, but he's afraid to come out into the open. There's no record of the trial that Jesus was on before the council, any sign of Joseph's raising his voice, raising concern, any kind of, um, of, of anything that he would say. Joseph there watching it. And after the death of our Lord, when he hung on that cross, Mark tells us that Joseph took courage and finally stood up to be counted. And he goes to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And as we discussed last week, crucified victims were not treated well. Usually they were just left on the cross, then taken down and thrown to a common garbage heap. But Joseph, when he sees what Jesus did for him, he says, I don't care. And we know that Nicodemus went with him, according to John's gospel. Nicodemus, who was the one who came to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night, and Jesus said, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted that serpent up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I'm sure that as Nicodemus saw that Jesus was lifted up, he said, I understand, I understand. They went to ask for the body of Jesus. I heard teaching once a while back. It kind of stuck with me. I remember somebody was kind of criticizing a little bit you know, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus being secret disciples. But when I think about it, where are the other disciples? <laughs> where are the apostles? You know, Peter who walked on water. Those guys who worked miracles when they went out two by two, who saw the miracles. The ones who were told several times that Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Where were they? They were locked up in a room hiding. So I wouldn't be too hard on these guys, but I do want to make a point that might help you who think, you know what, I, I don't walk on water. I don't work miracles. I really don't sit up front. I'm not very vocal at, at work about my belief. It was Joseph and Nicodemus that went to ask for the body of Jesus. That was a very radical thing for them to do. And as they would ask for the body of Jesus, they were put in their own positions, prominent positions in jeopardy. They would be seen as a sympathizer of this one that was handed over to be delivered, to be put to death. They would risk a lot, their reputations, everything. And they said, I don't care. We don't care. We're going to ask for the body of Jesus and we're going to prepare his body for burial. When did they do that? When they saw what Jesus did for them on Calvary's cross. And if you're one that maybe you're just like, I kind of hold back, I, I, I don't like to talk about it, I want to encourage you. You look and you ponder and you meditate what Jesus Christ has done for you. He died publicly for you because of his love for you. He's given you a living hope. 
He's given you the possibility to have forgiveness of sin and right relationship with the Father. And as you just look at his love that it was demonstrated for you, you're going to come out and you're going to say, I don't care what people think. I'm going to proclaim my Lord. And I'm going to stand for him. And I'm going to share that with others. And for you who are sharing with others, you know what? The way to really touch their hearts is not to put pressure on them, not to make them feel guilty, not to try to manipulate their emotions. You take them to Calvary. You take them to Calvary's cross and let them know very clearly what Jesus has done for them because of his love for them. And so here, as we finish this morning, Joseph asking for the body of Jesus, he went to Pilate, and Pilate marveled, verse 44, that he was already dead. The reason he marveled, because it usually took like two, three, four days for a crucified victim to die on the cross. And so summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And then he brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which he had hewn out of the rock, rolled a stone against the door of the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he laid so Joseph takes the body of Jesus wraps it in linen cloth places the body in his tomb that had never been used that's very important there was no other bodies in there he hewn it out of the rock it was in a garden nearby Calvary and this would be you know something very expensive for Joseph you know to have tombs like that and personal tombs was a very, very, very expensive thing. But, you know, Jesus is only going to use it for three days. Because next week we're going to look at Mark's account of the resurrection, validating what Jesus did for us in dying on Calvary's cross. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text that we can be so familiar with, that once again our hearts are touched by the incredible amazing sacrifice that was provided for us. And so the veil has been rent. And now to come into relationship and intimacy and fellowship, to be cleansed of our sins, has now been made possible because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's what we proclaim. That's the truth of the scriptures. It is found in no one else or anything else. It's Jesus' death on Calvary's cross. And if anyone is here this morning, that, that you're in the sanctuary, maybe in a coffee shop, you're, gonna, you're listening to this on the radio, that you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, he is your only way to forgiveness of sin and salvation and relationship to the Father. He loves you. And if the Lord is touching you this morning, don't leave this place. It should bring fear into your life, knowing that apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're still in your sin, and you're separated from God. And there will be eternal separation from Him if you continue in that. So open your heart to Him. He loves you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Surrender your heart to Him. The Scripture says that we have all sinned and that we are to repent and surrender to Jesus. We want to give you opportunity if there's anyone here this morning. And you pray in your heart, Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess that. And I believe that you're the Son of God who came and died for me on Calvary's cross. That you're the Son of God, the righteous one. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. 
I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to you right now. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, anyone here in the sanctuary, I want you to just raise your hand. Don't be afraid. We want to encourage you this morning. Don't be afraid. You see what Jesus has done in your life, just as Joseph and, and Nicodemus did. And they, they recognized it, and they proclaimed it. You proclaim it right now by raising your hand. Anybody at all, if you're out in the coffee shop, raise your hand, or if you're listening to the radio, that you call in and you tell us the decision that you made. Anybody at all here this morning? Oh, Father, I, I thank you that, that we've come to you and we have real hope and we can live life satisfied and fulfilled and in a closeness with you because the veil has been rent and we come in the confidence that is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray for any of us that perhaps that we feel distance. Maybe it's because of carnality. Maybe we've been involved in sin. Maybe it's because you've just been busy with life you would draw close to him right now. If there's anything that you need to confess, that you confess it, Lord, I have been involved in this sin. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's things you're looking at. Maybe it's a relationship you're involved in. Maybe it's, it's being dishonest in some way that you turn away from that and you turn to Christ. You turn to him and receive his forgiveness once again and his love. Father, thank you for your love that remains. Forgive me. And you live this day and every day in close fellowship and intimacy with him because he's made it possible. And Father, I pray that we would always understand that we are a blessed people no matter what goes on in this world because we belong to another kingdom that is the kingdom of God. And even in difficulties that we go through, that we can shine the light in the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives to touch many. Father, I pray that you just bless those who are going through difficult times, strengthen them, bring comfort to them. Lord, assurance that your promises are true and your presence is there with them. And Father, may we leave this place rejoice that we belong to you, that we're a forgiven people, and we have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.